Hey, sweet friends, and welcome to the Restoration Road podcast. I'm so excited for you to hear this conversation today with my sweet friend, Kat. She is going to come on and talk about her overcoming her addiction with prescription pain pills and walking down the journey of being diagnosed with some really hard things when she was young and then being prescribed by a doctor um, medicine to treat those things and then becoming addicted to them and how that affected her and her journey of recovery coming into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous and just through prayer and through working the steps and working with a sponsor Um, just one day at a time overcoming that addiction to prescription pain pills and this is such a great story and I just pray that it will bless you today and give you hope and inspire you to know that you are never alone and healing is possible so without further ado here is my sweet friend Kat my name is Kat. I am a mother of two teenagers now, 15 and 17. I have been sober for a little over 12 years now. You know, had a normal upbringing. Um, nothing crazy. Didn't do a lot of crazy things uh, growing up in high school. Uh, went off to college. Was diagnosed with a couple of chronic illnesses. So I was always kind of lost, um, but mm. I could never kind of pinpoint that feeling of what it was. You know, grew up in the church, but never really felt uber connected. Uh, then I was super sick and got labeled and got a lot of attention and sympathy um, for having Crohn's disease. And it was kind of a major deal. And that became kind of like my crutch um, and my identifier and the way that, you know, I kind of was labeled and it was kind of one thing after another and still lived a, a college life with friends and definitely always lost, always searching for more, trying to, you know, have the material out things. So on the outside, everything looked good. Um, and everything like it was okay, but never really, you know, kind of loved myself or knew who I was or what my real purpose was. And then I had some chronic migraine stuff that went on and some big things that happened. They went to doctors all over and everybody's answer kind of was, and I'm sure it's because the way that I portrayed the symptoms a lot of times um, and the attention that I got from that um, was always take more medicine, take more medicine. Mm. Um, And that at that point, just kind of more so became the coping mechanism for everything. If something went wrong, it was like, oh, just take the medicine. Mm. Um, And, or if I didn't like the way things were, let me manipulate this because I don't feel well. I did this because I don't feel well. The the frequency and, and the health problems became more and more and greater and greater. And at this point, I can look back and identify things the longer I've been sober and the more work I've done. Another part, you know, through all my health problems, I was always told I could never get pregnant um, and was also um, on birth control and got pregnant. Um, and we decided we would get married. It, looking back, it was the best decision ever, but it was a really hard decision. Life was just really hard. And from that point forward, for the next couple of years, um, life was really rocky. Um, and there was, you know, no real relationship with God. It was a very, you know, superficial everything. We had the wedding at the beach with our friends and everything was fine. And we had the big house and the big town and everything looked great. You know, on the outside, we were both had two great careers and, um, and it was hard. Um, it was really hard and a lot of depression. And then it was moving back to Mississippi. And that was really, really hard with a one-year-old. And um, then it was, you know, going to have another surgery, but oops, pregnant again. And all of that escalated. And, and, you know, my problems or anything 
if I didn't like doing the hard work in marriage, it was go lay in the bed. It was a lot of things that I did selfishly looking back. Um, it was a lot of me, 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 um, because I didn't know who I was or what I wanted. And it was never enough. Mm. Um, and, you know, fast forward to, you know, a stay at home mom who's done a few things, jobs here and there, who was a, used to have a career that kind of defined me. I allowed my career to define me for a long time before, before that. And, um, you know, a stay at home mom with a nanny who struggled for everybody to think everything was perfect on the outside, but inside I was an incredibly lost soul. I was always enabled when things got bad or when things weren't going my way, I could always get what I wanted somehow. Mm -hmm. Um, and my doctors, you know, spent some time, um, when my young second child was born, um, had another brain surgery, um, and then ended up at Mayo for a period of time. And the answer was more medicine, more medicine, more medicine. Um, nobody's fault. Um, but that's just what happened. Um, and you know, I was never really a heavy drinker, but I did drink. I would take pills and drink and do things. And, you know, I feel like no consequence, no real consequences. I mean, lots of emotional consequences, but no real consequences. Everybody's like, you really need to go to an outpatient treatment center. And I did that. Uh, I wasn't ready. I went for everybody else. Didn't do anything they told me to and told them I was really sick because it did stress me out. And all of my illnesses are triggered by stress. Mm. Um, and also, you know, kind of weaning off medicine makes you really sick. So that can also induce a lot of what I had going on. My brother-in-law took all the kids and my sister and my brother, my parents and my husband sat me down and they said, you're done. Mm. You, you can either go to treatment or I, I remember the quote and I could be off on the words because I just kind of woke it up. And my dad said, you can go live under a bridge and never see your kids again. Mm. And for the first time in my life, I knew that somebody meant what they said. Mm. And that was, um, you know, a turning point for me. Now I will say this, and, and I say this to people often, he said that to me. And at that point I knew that they, they meant business, but they did. I couldn't really communicate very well with them. My brother had a dear friend uh, who had been sober a long time that he had talked to that day. And I went outside and talked to him on the phone mm. and I connected to him. Um, and at that point was able to feel like somebody understood me. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of where I went and went off to treatment. Um, and I'll give you a quick synopsis. It's kind of long winded, but uh, went to treatment uh, at that point to a place where I didn't think I needed to go. Uh, I had thought I needed to go to this um, camp or like to some really cool treatment center that everybody would think oh, that's the only place that she would go. It's good enough for her. She used to go to, you know, the ritzy um, mm. treatment center. I went to a treatment center in small town, Mississippi. I was the only one who did not have an ankle bracelet. And it's exactly what I needed. I mean, God put me there so I could see what my life could turn out to be. Mm -hmm. uh, while it was a little drastic for what I was used to, like, I mean, I had my house in a great suburban neighborhood. You know, did I? I was there. Um, it was what I needed. I was able to see my family on the weekends and my parents and my kids. Um, it was what I needed. And it was the wake up of reality that all the other stuff didn't matter. Mm. Um, and that's kind of where my journey began. And, you know, I kind of always laugh and say, was I worried what other people thought about me? Absolutely. Like my husband would call me and we would talk on the phone when I was in treatment and it was the holidays, right? So one of my biggest concerns was what everybody in my suburban great 
um, neighborhood thought about me because my Christmas decorations were still up. And he was like, I've got two children. I've got two toddlers at home. My wife is in treatment. I really don't care. And that's what I was worried about. What do people mm-hmm. think about me? Mm-hmm. Because I'm away and my Christmas decorations are still up. And you know, that still hits home to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just kind of where the journey began. It's been, not been an easy journey by any means. And the beginning was a lot harder. Um, but that's what got me to the point. Um, I went to treatment for 30 days and then came out and, and did what they told me to do and, and walked into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm. Thank you so much for sharing that. I mean, I love that so much. Just the brutal honesty of like, I I needed to go somewhere that was so out of my comfort zone in order to be able to hear from God. I think sometimes we think what we feel like will work for us, but God's like, no, no, no no, no, I have something else in mind. And and absolutely. Like, I mean, I I truly believe if I had spent, you know, $100,000 and gone to Betty Ford, Ford. one of the great, the the other treatment centers, and I'm sure I I probably could have gotten sober. Um, But for my pride and ego and Mm. all the things that I had, God knew exactly what I needed. And that was to go to a place that was not comfortable. Mm-hmm. that I had to work. And then I had to realize, and, and it was a very spiritual experience for me. Like I did mm-hmm. not want to be there. I did not go, you know, God was doing for me what I couldn't do for myself at that point. Mm, I love that so much. So do you feel like you identify more as somebody who is addicted to pain pills or an alcoholic or do they interweave? Like, is it both for you? How do you distinguish that? How would somebody understand that? So when I went to an outpatient treatment before I went to inpatient, I thought I only had a problem with pills. Um, and I continued to drink when I was in that outpatient treatment center. Um, needless to say, I'd never stayed sober. Mm. Um, for me, it was my drug of choice, obviously was pain pills. Um, and I thought I didn't have a problem because my I never bought anything off the street. It was all one doctor who prescribed everything to me. I learned the hard way in that outpatient treatment center that one leads to the other um, Mm -hmm. and that they are totally intertwined to have chosen a life um, of nothing, of no, you know, mind altering substances. Um, Not to say that I haven't had surgery in recovery and had to take something because I have the help of a sponsor and my husband and everybody else had to take um, narcotics um, once in sobriety. For me, I can't, I I choose not to do either. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Um, So how old were your kids when you got sober? My kids were two and four when I got sober. So basically babies. Basically babies. (laughs) I know. Lucy turned three right when I got out of treatment or, you know, a month after I got out of treatment. So they Mm -hmm. were babies. And thankfully, you know, looking back, you know, I was thinking through, you know, when you asked me to do this, I was kind of reminiscing and had the opportunity to go back to the group I got sober in yesterday. I was back in town. And so I went and I was thinking, well, like I had never been to jail. I had never gotten DUI. I was married. I had a house. I had all those things. I wasn't working. So I didn't lose my job. But I, I was thinking back to, you know, like every time we would pass CVS, my kids would say at, at two and four, do we need to go get your medicine? Oh, and that's wow. what sticks out in my head, right? Another thing mm-hmm. that I, you know, kind of think back through is what I missed out on. Um, mm-hmm. Those early, early memories um, of two and four. But um, yes, my kids were very young, um, which I am forever grateful for. Yes, praise God. 
What do you feel like has been one of the biggest benefits about being a sober mom? Like, how have you felt just the grace of God being able to be present um, during the journey of raising your kids? You and I often talk about this and, and, and so many people, I can't imagine um, navigating motherhood and craziness um, of raising teenagers, not being a sober mom. Now mm-hmm. I'm sure it's done all the time and I'm sure it's never too late to get sober. Right. Yeah. Um, I'm just forever grateful that I have been able to be present in the hard times and present in the good times and been very open with my kids. Mm-hmm. I have never tried to hide my sobriety. Sobriety is such a gift um, to me. And if I can pass it on to somebody else, you know, kind of what I've gone through and, and help somebody else not have to go through the extra pain that I went through, then that's what I'm supposed to do. And, you know, that's a gift for me to be able to give it to somebody else. Yeah. I love that so much. What would you tell somebody who comes in either as a young mom or dad and is like, but I'm used to going on play dates where we have a couple drinks, or I'm used to going out with friends who, you know, this is kind of the norm that we get our kids together and we barbecue and we drink beer. Like, how would you explain to somebody that it, it can be done and it can be fun with, without the drinking or without the pills? You know, that's something I so struggled with. And I know you remember that well, but I mean, I lived in a neighborhood that was very social. I mean, mm-hmm. everybody got on their golf carts with their, their glasses of wine and their kids all played together. And I didn't know how I was going to do it. Like, how mm-hmm. am I going to adapt back in and not be that person? Because everybody's going to be talking about me. Like the one girl that does, everybody's going to be talking about me. Well, I quickly realized nobody was going to care. But in the beginning, I couldn't put myself in those situations until I was really tried and true and had a firm foundation in sobriety. I wasn't willing to risk it. You know, I think that we have to seek and work sometimes to find Mm. what we need. And I think that it's in the growing and in the pain that we grow even more. And sometimes we're meant to to not have to be busy, busy all the time, Mm. even though with, with kids... We always thought being busy was the answer. Um, and I did it for so long. And how my kids were like, can we please just stay home sometimes? You know, because sometimes I needed that because I didn't want to have to sit still. It's hard, but it's mm-hmm. worth it. Do you feel like it's possible to be a present parent and not be sober? There are plenty of people that don't have a problem with alcohol and drugs. And there mm-hmm. are plenty of people that can have a glass of wine and have a play date. And those people... Um, I believe are very present in their child's life. Then I think there's somebody like me who couldn't, was never enough, right? You know, I mentioned Mm -hmm. earlier, I was always looking to fill myself. I was very uncomfortable in my own skin. I never really knew who I was. Um, And I tried everything and there weren't enough pills in the world to feel like I was good enough. There weren't enough pills in the world to feel like I fit in. Um, you know, I needed that pill before I went to have a com- to church so I could feel like I could have a conversation at church, right? Because I just didn't know who I was. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was handicapped and unable to be present. Um, so I think that there are two kinds of people. Um, there are those that are that are present and can can partake in, in all those things, and then there's somebody like me who couldn't. Um, do I think that if I were still in active addiction that I could be present? No, not at all. Um, you know, I, I think that my disease would have only progressed. And, you know, I think about all these bonus years that I've been given because I mm. can't imagine that I would still be here. Mm. Oh, that's so powerful. Thank you so much for sharing that. I, I love that so much. I can remember when 
when I got sober, Olivia was three. And to this day, she still remembers me taking her into, because in Mississippi, you can't buy wine in the grocery store. There is no Publix. (laughs) You have to go into a liquor store to buy wine. And she remembers at only three years old, going into a liquor store. And, and I, I, I kind of cringe, but I also need to remember that as only a three-year-old and like you said, your kids saying, do we need to go get your medicine? They're so aware of what we're doing. And for so long, I would justify and rationalize things I did and think they're so little, they don't know, or they have no idea that I'm drinking or that I'm buzzed or, you know, and I think I think it's so easy to rationalize that our kids are just unaware. Like they just don't know. And they're very, very aware. You know, for me, I think back of one was never enough. Yeah. Um, And could I go on this trip? Did I have enough medicine or did I have to go sit at the doctor's office? Right. Or call my doctor and come up with a story or So I think it's just kind of, what are your motives? You know, Mm. what, what, what's going on in your life is, are you doing this because of something? Are you just socially having a glass of wine with your friends? Are you Mm. taking this medicine because you really are in pain and it's something needed? Look, I mean, I think that the medicine is there for a reason and I think it has a purpose. Everybody's story and journey is very different. And I think that if you abuse it, then it is a problem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's so good. What, what would you tell somebody who's listening to this, who is thinking, oh no, my kids have seen me drunk. My kids have seen me do things that I'm ashamed of and who are curious about what recovery means or what Alcoholics Anonymous is all about, but they're afraid of what other people might think about them. And they're, they're afraid to actually go in and see what it's all about because of what other people might think about them. You know, I was that person. Let me raise my hand and foil them and say, I was that person that didn't want to go into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous because I had so much pride and so much ego that I thought I was better. I didn't know what an alcoholic was. I mean, I knew my dad was an alcoholic who got sober, but I didn't know what that was. You know, my dad was successful. And so I was like, ah, but he never really went to these meetings. And so when I I hesitantly walked up the steps to that first meeting and sat on the wall and didn't say my name, didn't want anybody to know I was there. I was going to do what they told me to do. And I left treatment and go to 90 meetings in 90 days. And then I was going to move on. Like I was going to be cured and we were going to be great. You know, I was so worried that I was going to see somebody else in that room that might know me. But then I was also like, but I'm so much better than they are. Like I, I, don't, I don't live under a bridge. That's what an alcoholic is a drug addict snoring cocaine and shooting up all these things. Unfortunately, the world we live in paints that picture and that's not reality. You know, Mm -hmm. I walked into a room full of very successful business people, of moms, of dads, of broken people. Yeah, there are people that have lost everything because of their addiction, but they all had the same problem and they were all full of love and they were all full of hope. Um, it didn't, I didn't see that in the beginning. Don't get me wrong. Like I jumped ship, you know, jumped forward to that, to that part of me you know, to, to realize that. But I was so worried that everybody else is going to think about me. I was worried that my kids were never going to have a play date again. Mm-hmm. I was worried that my house would have a red X on it. Right. And people like, oh my God, don't let your kid play with their kids. Their mom's crazy. She went to, you know, to rehab. I will say that 99% of those things never came true. Um, all of the fear, all of the worry, all of the things, um, that 
I thought were going to happen never happened. Um, you know, people that I was worried were going to see me, see me in the rooms of alcoholics and I'm, they were there too. They had a problem. Mm. Mm. They didn't think any less of me. They were happy to welcome me in and tell me what their life used to be like and what their life was like now. For the the person that's worried, like I always today, I can still get, go down that rabbit hole of worrying what everybody else thinks about me. Um, and one thing that I have held in the palm of my hands, and so I mean, I walked into dreams of Alcoholics Anonymous is it's none of my business what anybody else thinks about me except God. And I have had to cling to that. And sometimes I can embrace it and, you know, I'm good. And some days, you know, unfortunately I struggle today. I'm proud of who I am and, and, and where I've come and, and what I've have been able to do as a mom um, in my career. You know, I went back to work many years ago um, and it hasn't all been easy, but it's all been worth the work. Mm, I love that. Thank you for sharing that. I remember being about six months sober and really keeping it a secret, like going to AA and not really sharing with anybody in my church or anybody, you know, I just was like, I'm not going to tell anybody. I'm so embarrassed to tell somebody that I'm in AA and getting sober. And I remember asking my sponsor, when do you tell somebody? Cause like I was having friends at church, but I was like, I felt like I was living like this secret little life, like you know, not being honest or authentic. And, um, I asked my sponsor, when do you tell people that you're in recovery? Like, it's so embarrassing. What if they judge me? And she said, you'll know when it's time, you'll know when it's time. And I just, I cling to that because I've gotten better throughout the years of knowing when that right time is. If somebody knew, like we were talking before we started this moving and, getting to know new friends or a new church or a new job, like when is the right time to tell somebody and maybe it never is, but when you get close to people, you know, it's a big part of your life. You kind of want to share. Um, and I just feel like for me, I can remember, you know, because the church that we got sober at was also a daycare. And so moms that I knew that didn't know I was in recovery, would be dropping their kids off and I'd be walking in and they would know that I, my kids weren't at that place. Then I just remember thinking, what do I do? What do I do? And being so afraid. And I look back now and it's, it's funny. Like I laugh, but at the time I was mortified. Like, what if they know I'm in AA, you know, I was so scared, but, um, it took me a long time to be able to feel comfortable enough to say, you know what, like he said, what other people think about me is none of my business. And that was a process for me, for sure. I feel like God always armored me to tell the right people. Yeah, I love that so much. And I love that you use the word discerning. I think that that's such a wise way to put it. Like it is discernment. Like when we moved here, like joining a new life group or even serving in kids ministry, like I was doing all the things I was doing back in Madison, but these were all new people. And so they didn't know my story yet. And and, you know, it took, it took a while. Like we were in our life group for a good year before we, before I shared. And it was only when the topic was appropriate and, and, and had to do with what an idol would be, or, you know, something like that, that was relevant. It wasn't just like, Hey, I'm here, blah, you know, <laughs> and like, you know, it's kind of one of those things, you know, and, and moving and, um, people are like, where are you going? Or why are you going back to Jackson? I'm like, Oh, you know, I'm going to a meeting. What kind of meeting are you going to? At that point, you know, I'm, I'm not going to lie, you know, I'm, oh, I'm yeah. very involved in AA, you know, and mm -hmm. I do go back um, to my home group and drive back to Jackson, um, you know, every couple of weeks just to, 
to be filled back up and be reminded. Uh, and, and I don't hide those things, you know, yeah. but that again, it's when the opportunity is right. Um, yeah. I always, and I kind of always feel that nudge. Yeah. The nudge, the Holy spirit nudge. Absolutely. Uh, I love that. Um, what do you do now? Like if you go through, like we both have teenagers now and, um, it can get stressful. <laughs> what does it look like for you to deal with hard situations without being able to numb out? What's your social lubricant, if you will? <laughs> I wish it was just that easy. I, I mean, mm. I wish there was just a social lubricant, um, that would fix everything, right? A problem is a problem and a problem's not going away. Um, even if I were to numb it out, um, mm. thankfully I don't have to do that today. You know, I have a, a spiritual toolbox and I have a toolbox of things to do when I'm in those situations to call a sponsor, to call a friend. But, you know, my first go-to is to pray about it as opposed to pop the pill. Um, you know, I, that 911 call to God or it's not 911, but that, that call to God of, of what do I do next? Um, you know, and I have fortunately surrounded myself with a lot of really godly friends um, mm. that are really good sounding boards. The steps of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I can apply to every aspect of my life and I can apply it to the aspects of raising my kids. I can help, you know, I have learned so much in sobriety that thankfully I have been able to pass down to my children um, and the things that happen in their lives. Mm, I love that. That's so good. Thank you for sharing that. And I also love the saying, my feelings won't kill me, but my thinking will. Yeah, absolutely. if I get in my head and I project, or if I make it bigger than it is, which like alcoholics and addicts, we're awfulizers. We think worst case scenario and um, it's zero to a thousand in one second. (laughs) So I love what you said. It's like pause and pray and reach out and talk to somebody. There are spiritual tools today that before it was all chemical solutions. I also take situations that I have had in my life and have overcome whether they're the same or similar in some way and use those to help my kids. Cause I'm like, look, I don't want you to have to go through what I went through. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And I love that's such a great reminder because I mean, I have a teenager who is going through anxiety and being able to tell him that it's okay to talk about these things and know what it is and be able to understand because when you understand it, and talk about it. You don't, you won't have to look for alcohol. You won't have to look for a coping mechanism because you will understand that this is a normal part of being a human being. And, um, I'm so great. Like if I had known that when I was 15, that would have probably possibly changed a lot for me. (laughs) You know, if I couldn't have done the work on myself to dig deep and work through and expose, you know, you're only as sick as your secrets. If I can't get those out and work through them, being able to have done all that work has given me the opportunity to help my kids to get it out before it gets too deep. Mm, That is so good. That's so, so good. And I, I, I am so thankful for that. Last night, Olivia and I were talking about character defects and I was explaining to her what they are. And just for anybody listening, we learn a lot about character defects in recovery and just how our character defects or our character flaws separate us from God and from each other. And so I was telling her, we all have these character flaws in us. And when we become aware of them, that's when we can change them. And so her being able to hear that and really take that to heart was a gift because like you said, if I hadn't been through this process and this 
program and change and the gift of being able to change and recognize those things, I wouldn't be able to help her. I'd be like drinking my wine and being like, whatever, you'll be figure it out, you know? So absolutely. Oh, I'm just so, so grateful. And like you said, it's never too late. It's never too late. My kids are going to have, they have their own journey as hard as it is. I mean, I am a type a control freak, um, who wants what I want when I want it. And I want it yesterday. Um, and I know that about myself. Like I know that, uh, my kids are both competitive athletes. So I know that I want the outcomes to be the best for them. I want them to, you know, but they struggle. I mean, they are both golfers, which is a really hard sport. They have a lot of ups and downs and it's hard to watch your kids struggle. And it's hard Mm -hmm. not to be able to pick them up and do it for them. I'm a doer, right? I'm a fixer. I'm a doer. And so it's really hard. It reminds me there's a daily reflections, which is like the quote unquote devotional that we read in Alcoholics Anonymous. And there's one that talks about like, when we get that restless, irritable, discontent feeling, it's because we've crossed the God line. Like we've gone, we've stepped over and now we're trying to handle it ourselves. And it's such a good like spot check inventory for me to be like, okay, why am I restless? Why am I anxious? Oh, I've, I'm trying to do God's job. I'm trying to do it in my own power and I can't do that. Yeah. And that, and that's why I have to still be involved. Right. Yeah. Because it's so, I'm so quick to do that. Right. Mm. I mean, my, that's my go-to my instinct. Mm. And so I have to, I have to be grounded and go, um, go to a lot of meetings and stay very connected. Yeah. So people ask like, so you're over 12 years sober. And, um, do people say, why do you still go to those meetings? <laughs> oh, do they ever? Um, <laughs> and it, it's, it's so funny because, um, you know, I had the opportunity to go back, um, to the group where we've got sober together and yesterday and it was such a good culmination of events, right? Somebody was celebrating their second sobriety birthday. The next breath, somebody was sharing um, how a friend of theirs had relapsed and the struggle that they had. So why do I still go to meetings? I still go to meetings because like I've said, I still have so much inner work to do um, and I want to be the best version of me. Um, I want to be able to do God's will and, and to do what God has has put me here to do in this life. But I also don't ever want to forget where I was. Mm. Uh, I go to hear what other people have to hear, to say. Um, to learn from others, and then to share my experience, strength, and hope, um, because I was given a gift um, that was so freely given to me that I feel like is my responsibility to continue to suit up and show up and and to pass the message on. So I go selfishly a lot of times, Mm. you know, it's part of my self-care is to still Mm. go and to hear what others are still experiencing and their struggles. Um, It gives me so much gratitude for where I am today. And it also helps me to realize I'm really just a drink and a drug Mm. away from going right back to where I was. Mm. I love that. That's so true. Such good perspective. Thank you for sharing that. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I'm so thankful for you and your sobriety and the way you parent and just, oh, you're such a gift to me. And I'm just so eternally grateful for you. I can't imagine getting sober. It's not having you and David and your kids. Um, Because look, I think that It's so important for couples to have couples to offer them um, the hope that that marriage can be restored and that you can parent together um, and that there is light at the end of the tunnel, you know, and I think that that was so important for, you know, for my family, um, your family, you know, I laugh and tell my, you know, my daughter 
has always been very aware of everything that goes on in Alcoholics Anonymous. And she loves all the people that have come in that I've sponsored through the years. And, you know, I think that at some point they may all need each other. And I kind of kiddingly say that in kind of our close group. I'm like, well, I mean, you may need these friends. Um, if any of y'all go down this road, you know, you may be there together to have each other and you know what to do. Um, and you know who to reach out to. So, I mean, I, I am forever grateful for those, those beach trips and those, uh, you know, the step work in the car and those steak night dinners on Friday nights and, um, all the little things, um, and the lessons learned together that will um, forever be cherished and etched in my mind. I love that so much. And I'm so grateful for that too. And I, I, I love that you said, if our kids ever do have to go down this path. And I think sometimes I hear parents sometimes say, oh my gosh, I hope my kids are never, you know, an alcoholic or a drug addict or whatever. And I have come to a place because of AA and being a part of the program for so long that I pray those same things too. But if for whatever reason, one of them does need to get sober, like we will know where to, for them to go. They will know where to go because of seeing us in the example of there's no, we took the shame out of it and said, it's okay to ask for help. Absolutely. And I think not only if they go down this road, look, we're, we all encounter people on a regular basis. Um, and as my kids mature and become teenagers and, you know, go off to college and young adults, they can see those red flags in their friends and they can mm. be, oh, this is what happened to my mom. And maybe they can be the light to help somebody else. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. In fact, that's actually already happened. When we first moved here, Olivia was only in the seventh grade and she had a friend at school who told her that her daddy drinks a lot. And Olivia said, oh, well, maybe he can meet my mom and they can go to a meeting together. (laughs) It was just like second nature. So yeah, taking the shame out of getting help, I think is so important for our kids to see that it's okay. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and what a gift it is. You know, it's, there, it's a gift. It's a treasure. It's a blessing. Um, and it's grace. You know, it's mm. God's grace um, mm. abundantly that I couldn't ever earn and don't deserve. But what can I do with it today? Amen. Amen. God's gift to us is our sobriety and our gift to God is what we do with it. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. You're such a gift and I just love you. I love you too, friend. Thank you. Oh my goodness. What a gift her story is. I hope that that inspired you and helped you to realize that you are never alone. If you are going through any type of addiction, whether it's alcohol or pain pills or anything that you feel like you don't have control over, but you feel like it's controlling you. I pray that you would know that it is okay to ask for help. It's okay to say, I'm struggling. And that you would know that there is hope and there is healing. And there are so many people just like you who are living in the in the way that God wants them to live. And they didn't get there by themselves. They asked for help. And they do it together one day at a time. And so um, 
again, just please know that there is hope and there is healing available. And I'm so thankful that my friend Kat was able to share her beautiful testimony about coming in and and asking for help and then being able to be okay with who she is and not have to feel like she has to please other people or worry about what other people think about her and, and just being okay with who God says she is. And that is such a gift. And I know I'm not speaking for her when I say that that doesn't just happen overnight. That is a long process of working the steps and and praying and working with a sponsor. And, but the beautiful thing is recovery is a, is a process and, um, it, it truly is just one day at a time and we don't have to do it on our own. And I pray that if this will, encourage you or encourage somebody that you know that you will pass it along to them.